0: Hello, I'm Mary Sabatino, Vice President and Partner at Gallery Lalong & Co., and it is my pleasure to welcome you once again to Viewpoints with Gallery Lalong. In this episode of the Viewpoints Podcast, we'll hear a conversation between artist Michelle Stewart and curator Hans Ulrich Obrist, two friends who share an interest in nature, memory, and extinction. Hans Ulrich Obrist is the artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries in London. As an international curator and writer, Obrist plays a leading role in connecting artists to the world, most recently as artistic advisor of The Shed, Hudson Yard's new cross-disciplinary art space in New York. Michelle Stewart is a multidisciplinary artist who defies easy categorization. Her body of work includes both large- and small-scale earthworks, collages, drawings, photography, and sculpture, including a recent exhibition at Gallery Le Long, New York, titled Flight of Time. As a pioneering land artist, Stewart is interested in growth, decay, and disappearance, fascinations she shares with Obrist. They spoke on an early morning in April at Stewart's Studio in New York, Joined throughout by her bull terrier, Luna. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning, everyone. Here we are in Michelle Stewart's amazing studio on Worcester Street, in company also of Michelle's dog, Luna, who is with us. So this is going to be a trilogue, and we welcome Michelle and Luna to this podcast, well-known for her seminal earthworks and interactions with the landscape, both on a very monumental and intimate scale, artist Michelle Stewart is a pioneer of land art. Her hybrid uses of earth, frottage drawing, and photography are usually combined with found objects such as relic samples of earth, rock, and minerals, and also sculptural forms. Informed by an inherent passion for cosmic observation, literature and science, her work is influenced by autobiographical elements, ephemeral gestures and divergence between physical space and embodied memory. It of course also addresses very early on topics of ecology and by bringing together all the discipline, it shows us that most certainly we can only address the big topics of the 21st century if we go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge. But before, Michelle, we're going to talk about all of this, I wanted to ask you to begin with the beginning. I wanted to know how you came to art or how art came to you.
2: Oh, my. (laughs) Early, actually. Well, both my parents were from other countries, My mother was from Switzerland and my father was from Australia, and both of them were interested in culture, were cultured people. Even when I was quite small, I was taken to the opera and the ballet, even though I fell asleep most of the time, and I was given crayons and pencils and things to entertain myself with that were art things, so... I mean, my earliest memories are making drawings and my mother putting them up on the wall and saying, oh, look what Michelle did. I can hardly wait until daddy comes home and, you know, that type of thing. So it was it was an, a normal kind of introduction to creative process, I think.
1: And then there was the encounter with Rivera There was... That was Mexico, and it's interesting that that was such an important chapter in your in your early life. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience?
2: Well, I had gone to Mexico once already when I graduated from high school with a couple of friends, two Swiss friends and an American friend, and we drove down uh, to see the archaeological sites. And I stayed about a month, and I met someone while I was staying there who said, oh, you should definitely come back. And we had a correspondence, and so I went back about a year later. And when I went back, I stayed with a a family in Koiwakan, and in that family, the daughter knew Rivera slightly, And said, oh, you know, maybe he needs another assistant on his new mural. And would you be interested if I, you know, take you over there and introduce you to him? And I said, of course, I think that would be very interesting. So she did, and he was uh, very gallant. He took my hand, he kissed my hand, he says, oh, it's charming to meet you. (laughs) And, And yes, I can use another assistant. So I started working for him on the Insurgentes mural, which is near the Angel. It's now, I think, a tile mural, but originally it was a fresco, which, he, you know, some of his assistants were mixing paint, others were filling in. I was filling in, which meant I got up on these very precarious wooden boards high up, which I hated. And was very afraid of. But I did it. I did my
1: duty. I filled in, you know. It's an interesting early experience because already that had to do with going outside the museum. The murals were made for society. They did not happen in the confines of a museum space.
2: Right. And I was already very interested in, in mural making because... I had read about it, you know. I mean, some of the muralists had made murals in California, so yeah. in California we were familiar with the process and you know that getting done and everything. So I worked there for some months, and uh, I met Frida and though briefly because she would come by and with her car and you know say hello to Jago. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it was. It was a very good ex- early experience, yes.
1: And then you came back uh, to New York and in our previous interview Actually,
2: after that I
1: went to Paris. To Paris. So maybe the it's three good that years. you tell us a little bit more about Paris, yeah.
2: Well, I met a, a Catalan anarchist <laughs> and went up to Paris. That was the next That was the next step. And um lived in Paris, which was another education. I was 19, you know, till I was 22. So I was open to a lot of um Actually, that was my that was my grand tour in a sense. I mean, that was my European education, which I think was extremely important. One all the people I knew, I didn't know any Americans. They were all either French, Swiss, German or Spanish or Catalan. So all the people I knew and talked to generally were artists or in the art world. And I traveled around a bit. And France at the time was, was barely over the war. It was, it was a wounded country. Very hard to get anything. Not a very happy place in many ways. People were really not open to strangers. The South was different. Uh, when I traveled to the South or, or the Pyrenees, that was different for some reason, maybe because, you know, the Germans hadn't really occupied it that much. But, you know, in Béziers and Set, it was different. It was The South was quite different. But in the North, it was—I um, was depressed there, really, in a way. But I learned a lot. It was an important chapter.
1: And then you came back then to New Then I York. came back. Exactly. And that leads us to the beginning, you know, of the work we know. And in our last interview, we discussed your your plaster sculptures, which you did around 1961 at the very beginning of the 60s. And uh, they are very mysterious sculptures. So I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about what brought you to these plaster sculptures. And
2: Yes, well, it was very different from anything else going on. And I... I actually, when I look back now at photographs of it, I'm mystified that I did it. (laughs) I know the person that did it. I know that that is definitely part of my psyche. But I couldn't really say where, you know, any outside influence. It was just something that I did. It was... You know, I've never had to explain it to anyone. This is the first time anybody's ever asked about it.
1: What do you want to know about it? I mean... It would be just interesting to hear, you know, what prompted you to make these blaster sculptures. What were the inspirations? Who were the artists, you know, maybe who inspired you? And also, it's interesting in, in a way, because they were obviously very different from... This was the period where there was still a lot of abstract expressionism. Different oh, I was from totally the, different. That's it.
2: Totally. And it was very autobiographical and I did my own body sometimes and my own face and my own hands cast them and they were white. Some of them like had glass shards coming out from them one of them in particular and one had a chain around the neck. I think I think if he's you- Think about it, maybe they could be early feminist pieces because they were about women, me. Uh, I mean, I was the subject, but in a way they were about women in general being not being free to do what they wanted.
1: And in terms of early feminism, uh, I was friends with Nancy Spiro, and she, of course, talked a lot about you know, feminism in the 1960s, and you were also part of many of these groups. Could you tell me a little bit about your involvement in feminism in the 1960s? (laughs) It was, yeah,
2: it was revelatory. Actually, Nancy and I went to a lot of those meetings together because at that time I lived uptown too, and she did too. Well, Later, I got very inv- in the early '70s. I got very involved with a group that met at Lucy Lepard's studio. Sometimes we met at some of the artist studios too. We tried to affect change. Many of the women had credentials to become teachers and weren't getting teaching jobs. That was one of the one of the ways of affecting change. And then. We um we picketed the museums. <laughs> I picketed the Whitney. Can you tell me about this? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you about it. It was it was horrendous. We picketed the Whitney and, you know, little old ladies in the neighborhood would come up and say, "How can you do this? This is ridiculous." But the Whitney would send somebody down with coffee for us. Which was, I mean, kind of like, oh my God, you know, it's not really affecting them at all. I mean, it's like condescending, right? You know, so that was part of the
1: experience. And Nancy Spiro told me also a lot about exhibitions in the 60s, about artist-curated exhibitions as part of this feminist movement. Can you tell me about some of these shows? I
2: don't remember them. I was in some of them, but I didn't really go to them. I actually don't know what specifically she was talking about. I remember one was at NYU, and that was Marie Castoro and I. And And actually, that precipitated some interest because Lawrence Alway saw that show and called me up and asked me if he could come to the studio, and that was important because I didn't realize what he was doing. He was just coming to the studio, but he was he was extremely, you know, some people come to the studio and they come in and they don't say much. He was actually very interesting to talk to, and he talked about the work and asked a lot of questions about the work and then ended up writing an article for Art Forum, which— I did not know he was going to do and that was my introduction to, in a way to the press so that came out of one of those shows that I guess Nancy was talking about and and then and then I had a show not too long afterwards at uh, Max Hutchinson
1: Gallery in, in Soho Now it's interesting also because it's the 60s so many things happened there and it's of course feminism it's the anti-vietnam Movement, oh, uh, yes. And then it's also, so it's basically also the whole Earth Catalog. And I spent some time recently with Stuart Brand, who who invented and, you know, started and founded the whole Earth Catalog. And it had, of course, to do also with that moment that all of a sudden we could see planet Earth from other planets and it created a whole new awareness, one could say maybe, of the environment. But with you this connection to Earth, to the moon, to the planets, uh, is much more biographical, as you told me last time. It has much more to do, actually, with something which started with your parents. It's more the parents than the whole Earth's catalog. So I wanted to ask you... <laughs>
2: or maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so many influences that we have that we don't necessarily even realize we have when we have them. I mean, they be, all become part of us. It's like it's like a, a fabric of us because we're part of our time, we're part of our heritage, We are part of another time. I mean, my, my father was much older than my mother, so he was born in the 19th century. So I was getting part of you know somebody that was born in a Victorian era. So we're all part of all of that. I speaking of the Vietnam War, I was certainly a marcher against the Vietnam War. I was thinking of that this morning actually. Yeah. We should have some marches now. <laughs> uh I mean every everybody that was uh thoughtful marched against the Vietnam War. What really affected me too, I think, though was Opening up the world, I was already engaged in a kind of cosmology-type view with some drawings I was doing in the 60s, which have not been shown in, around here somewhere, where I was involved with this cosmology. I mean, there were drawings, you know, of a female, which, of course— It wasn't me specifically, but it was a female and, you know, and cosmic things. Then I started drawing the—I started drawing the moon and in little things. But then I decided I'd blow up the moon and I'd start drawing the moon. And that was more or less at the same time that we landed on the moon— so I wrote NASA and I said, could I have some photographs of the moon? <laughs> and they sent them, I mean, which which I think, you know, probably wouldn't happen today, but
1: I don't know. Maybe it would. And these are the drawings from 62, 63. These
2: are more from 68 and 69. So These are the later
1: ones because yeah. the early ones in 62, because there are these little planets and there are the drawings, as you told me last time, already from 63, uh, and one of these early drawings was actually shown in the gallery recently you know these very the early the moon was yeah
2: that's it the moon was some of the moon drawings were with NASA photographs i think one was in the in the recent show yes there was the moon and there was a drawing with some of the photographs that we borrowed from a collection yes but they weren't early 60s they were probably 68
1: or 69 i think and then you got the NASA images, but also um, it's interesting because in works like Specimens from 68 and Moon from 69, there was also a connection to the Peruvian Nazca site. Can oh, you tell yes. us about that? Oh, yes.
2: Well, yeah, that came a little bit later. I felt like I had to go there. Now, I'm very interested in early early humans, what they did and what they didn't do, and I planned a trip to South America, which included Machu Picchu and Nazca and the and the Galapagos Islands. And in Nazca, naturally, in order to see it really in its full expansion is to low fly over it, which I took a lot of photographs. And Also, you can walk around it. There are places you can walk. They have, I don't know why, put the, you know, Pan American Highway right through it. I mean, believe it or not. I mean, but um, it's an incredible place. And it's still pretty much the way it was, I think, because it is so dry there and it never rains. So the... The earth has remained with these lines embedded in them and hasn't changed because it's so dry and hasn't changed. And it's spectacular. There are very huge realistic drawings and very large abstract parallelograms. And a woman named Maria Reich was working there, and she's since died, but she was trying to explain what they meant by these large diagrams and I think the ones that were whales and birds was symbolic to their to their beliefs, and I think they had rituals where they followed rituals through them. And the parallelograms, I think, were were really to tell time. I think they were about when to plant. And that, to me, was really the most interesting, was, was the abstract diagrams. And um, so I did a piece using the earth from the site, which I <laughs> pirated <laughs> and brought back, which I'm not sure you could do today, but— I did get it through the customs, and uh, I did a piece which was Nazca site, a huge Nazca piece, with drawings superimposed one upon the other in an in a, in a ancillary piece, which included my interpretation, their interpretation, and real star constellations and astronomical.
1: Drawing. All at the same time. Yes. I told you last time, you know, I, I traveled to Antarctica uh, with friends earlier earlier this year. And it's an extraordinary experience really to be in Antarctica because not only does one not encounter many human beings, one is mostly there with millions of penguins, penguins but also and whales, but also does it create an awareness of us not leaving traces because one really signs a contract at the beginning of going there to not leave traces and has to disinfect one's shoes each time one goes on land, on shore. It's a rule, no traces. And it's interesting because I kind of came back from that trip and had then a completely different relationship to, to the planet, to all the other geographies we move in because I just am uh, aware every day that we should not leave traces. Now, you you are a great pioneer of not leaving traces because of course a lot of land art, and that's also very different lies has been about leaving sometimes quite massive irreversible traces in the landscape and you said I never particularly wanted to leave a trace. Can you tell us a little bit about this and how your connection to landscape began with these frottages and how from there onwards you developed all these rituals which really never left a trace?
2: Well, they didn't. <laughs> the first one I did was I was invited to what was called Art Park in 1975. The original idea, I think the first year 1974 was was an idea that they proposed from some writings of Smithson. And artists were invited up and I did a 460 foot paper well, it was paper backed with muslin piece, which was smashed earth from, the, from one of the strata sites of the escarpment and then rubbed so that it was a kind of red iron oxide, so it was, it was pink. And it went from the top of the escarpment all the way down to the Niagara River. To actually see it, Perfectly, you had to go to Canada. <laughs> and um, from Canada, it, was, it sliced the whole escarpment, and it was actually very moving. It was the first site of the Niagara Falls, and in 12,000 years, it had moved down to where it is today. I researched it before I did the piece and, you know, learned that that. It was also the site of one of the five nations, uh, the Native Americans from that particular area. And I found when I was digging for, you know, to the placement of this piece, a very small, small sack, which I never opened and still have and that actually gave me the idea of doing the rock books
1: the sack which is like a time capsule in a way yeah uh?
2: it, it was yes exactly it was very small and you still have it here yes i still have it here oh. but that piece was taken by the wind about 2 or 3 weeks later and so it you know was gone from the site mm. And then the next piece I did, which was a uh, uh, about four years later, was in uh, off on an escarpment near the Dalles in Oregon, near the Columbia, on overlooking the Columbia River, and that was a in a sense a clock, very large piece, about a thousand square feet, with a circle and, and other circles and cairns. And that was how you registered north-south and the rising of the sun on the equinox and the falling of the sun. And also that piece, when it finished, it was let dissolve. It lasted as it was for a few years. People went by and photographed it, and I heard they had weddings, (laughs) called it the Druid piece, but it's now just part of the landscape, what's left of it. It just dissolved like a lot of the standing stones which we see in the Orkneys or in Scotland or England or Sweden. So that's what that's what I wanted to happen. I didn't want to leave, a, you know, a sculpture. I just wanted it to go through its natural process and become part of the landscape. Luckily, actually, too— the land had belonged to a developer who stole the land, and the people that built on it built a house but left this piece because they, they liked the way
1: it was <laughs> becoming part of the land. So it's still down in you know, a dissolved, you know, it, it's still down somehow. The piece. Oh, yes, it's yeah. still
2: there. There's some Cairns there. We uh, got a, uh, an email from a journalist in Seattle who went there to see what it looked like. And she she told us that it's, it's still there, yeah. crumbling, but still there. Yeah.
1: And then there is, of course, also, you know, the, the aspect, it's not only the landscape, but there is also these aspects of archaeological sites. And we discussed that a bit last time, but I think it's interesting for the podcast to also talk a little bit about that, because you've done a whole series of works which have to do with archaeology, and we live in a in a digital age where we have more and more information. It's uh, an age where information is exponentially growing. Uh, it's now spring two thousand nineteen. Last month, so actually, in March two thousand nineteen, was the thirtieth anniversary of the World Wide Web. Tim Berners Lee has invented the World Wide Web in nineteen eighty nine. It's also the year where the GPS was invented. So in a way. This digital age, we can say after 30 years, has brought us, of course, a lot of new things, but it has also brought us maybe something which is not memory, because it has brought us information. But the fact that actually exponentially growing information is happening does not necessarily mean that there is more memory. It could maybe be that amnesia is somewhere at the very core of this digital age, which is why I think memory is so important now in In the work of a lot of younger artists, the idea also of of protesting against forgetting, as Eric Hobsbawm said. And it's of course not, it's not a static memory, it's a dynamic memory. And this idea of memory has been present in your work for quite some time. Again, you've anticipated that, you've worked with it. If you think about East-West memory relocated, it's there in all your works. Also the more recent works with archaeological sites. So to cut the long story short, let's talk about memory.
2: Oh, my. (laughs) Yes, I don't know why I'm so fascinated with memory, but I am. I'm always doing memory things. Sometimes they're autobiographical. In fact, most of the time they're autobiographical. But they always kind of hang their hat on some specific experience. or. I'm incredibly interested in, you know, what's hidden. And I think in archaeology it was all about what was hidden sometimes on purpose and sometimes by fate you know destiny because every time some culture was built there arrived a time when another culture wanted to diminish that culture and obliterate it they either lied about it or they got or they literally got rid of it they hid it and I think a lot of, many of the cultures realized that and they hid some of their most important beings and things. When they died, they wanted their most important things with them and they wanted the vaults closed like the Maya and in Egypt. And even even in lesser sophisticated cultures like, you know, Eastern American woodlands culture, even they hid some of their pottery and actually they f- they found pottery with not just babies in them but dog babies in them, so the dog meant something to them. All of these cultures had these hidden symbolic Forms or beings that were part of their inner world, and we did not know about it, I mean, including for a long time we couldn't read the codexes of the maya now now we can, but that's only in the twentieth century. I mean, nobody really knew what those glyphs meant and how sophisticated the Mayan. Culture was, and that's true, of course, with Egypt. But I think Maya is is one of the most sophisticated cultures that ever existed, and we're we're finding more and more today that that's why I decided, you know, at some point that I had to go to Tikal and I had to go to Bonampak and La and those places because not because I wanted to dig, but I wanted to experience you know, this, their space, their sense of space and their buildings and what was left of their frescoes. In to some learn f-
1: from that, in a way. Yes. When tourists come round said learning from Las Vegas, so we could say, you say, learning from the Mayas. Now, when you mentioned memory, I was also thinking, because my own memory actually is, in terms of New York, and I was reminded of it this morning, suddenly it's a strange thing how memory works, suddenly in the taxi... Uh, it came to my mind actually my very first visit to New York and I arrived here, I was a student and I only knew one person uh, initially and it was Alana Heiss and so I went directly to MoMA PS1, at that time PS1 and I said to Alana, I've got nowhere to stay and so she then, so I was sort of stranded and Alana of course, as she would always support uh young emerging practitioners. She has, in an extraordinary way, always supported curators and artists. At the very beginning, she says, no problem. You know, there's this uptown apartment. And she gave me a key where I then went and I I saw that there was another person living there whom she had given a key called Richard Richard Vasco, who was a Polish curator. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of my arrival in, in, in New York. And Alana also gave me a catalog of an exhibition to study called Rooms from 1976. And that's actually the very first time I I read about your work because you, of course, participated in this legendary group show with a work which actually had to do with what we just discussed, with memory. Can you tell us a little bit about this amazing exhibition, Room 76, your your memories, and and also the piece which, which you did, which, according to what I remember, has something to do with Vincent van Gogh. It
2: was a school. And when, P.S., whatever it was, P.S. 1. So when I started walking around, you know, the school was not made into anything at that point. When she gave it over to the artists, it was up to us to do a piece there, whatever it did for us, whatever seemed like, you know, it would say to us. At least that's how I took it. So I went over there and I looked at it and I remembered when I was in grammar school (laughs) that I used to constantly walk down this hall and at the end of the hall was this Vincent Van Gogh, which of course wasn't a real one, but we had a very educated principal in that school and she had put up like artworks on the walls of this grammar school. Grammar school in in Los Angeles was one to six. So I thought about my experience with that, and then I, I did a rubbing on one of the walls and then a rubbing on the parallel wall to that wall. I realized that memory always played tricks on us and that, in fact... Would I remember that wall as that wall is, or would I remember where it was? So I juxtapose the two walls because that's how I think memory does these. They aren't really tricks because you still remember it, but it's displacement of some sort. Always our memory, it has a life of its own and chooses to do what it wants to do. Sometimes it gets rid of what we don't like totally. <laughs> and sometimes it just displaces it. It becomes slightly different. That was the the idea behind that.
1: In rooms. Piece. And then maybe one or two last questions. I think we covered so much ground. It was an amazing. It was so much more amazing even than our previous interview. But I wanted to ask you about the books, because books play a very central role in, in your work. And, these are uh, books which are uh, basically uh, very much connected to memory. Uh, there are also sculptures. Can you tell us a little bit about the dozens and dozens of books you've been Oh, well, been doing? I love
2: doing the books.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'll always love doing
2: the books. As I said before, the original idea came from this little thing I found that was Native American at our park, buried in the earth. And so I came back after after art park and traveling around up in upstate New York a little bit. I wanted to do a book that had earth in it. So I didn't quite know how to do it at the time, and I tore up a lot of old drawings of mine that were on archival paper and put them in the blender. And investigated how to make paper. So I made little screens with, you know, um, wood and and screening and poured the mulch on it. And it made paper. Wonder of wonders.
1: It's like alchemy.
2: I know. It, it is like al- Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so that's how the book started with handmade paper. They didn't continue forever with handmade paper, but... Uh, That was the beginning. And they were all closed at the beginning, too. They held secrets, you know. They held the secrets of the time of the earth, just like the earth holds secrets. I mean, the earth does hold all these secrets. It's wonderful. (laughs) More more secrets under the earth than there are above the earth. (laughs) I mean... They graduated. They graduated, and, you know, much later, many years later, I did things inside. Some of them were still closed. I I did one, for example, that has a whole series of watercolors inside, but it's totally closed, and you can't open it. So that's like an archaeological dig,
0: right?
2: Only it's maritime. That's a whole other subject is the
1: maritime. That could be a whole other interview. Whole other interview. So we have to declare this podcast to be part one, and then we can do a part two next time, which will be about about Michel and the maritime dimension of uh, of the work. Very last question, I'm always interested in unrealized projects. I've been mapping them, cartographing them, you know, for many, many years because we know a lot about architects' unrealized projects because they publish them all the time, and actually through that, get reality built, but we know very little the end of the day actually. we know very little about artists' unrealized projects, and I hear rumors that you have a dream, and that your dream is actually to have a glass house with plants and I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit more about how this glass house with plants you dream of would actually work
2: well, you know. A whole other series that we haven't talked about is I did a series on extinction. Yeah. One of the large pieces, in fact, all of them were metaphors. And I'm I'm working on something now, just on you know off days, that's again on extinction. I I think we should start worrying about saving what's we're losing, both yeah, in, both in plants
1: and animals. Very relevant. We live according to Elizabeth Colbert. In the age of... I'm reading Colbert right yeah, now. Yeah, me too, and it's the age of the <laughs> really? six mass. We're in the middle of a six mass extinction. We are not only losing species, uh, our own species is threatened, because also we are losing a lot of cultural phenomena. We are losing, we're losing languages, languages disappear. Yes. Susan Hiller, whom yes. I would like to remember here, the wonderful yes. English artist, she mapped disappearance of languages. There's yes. a lot of extinction. So what are you working on right now in terms of extinction? Well, I want to do...
2: I want it to be a very large m a metaphor for plant ox extinction and it it should be in a in a glass it should be in a glass house <laughs> you know um yeah i mean it's it's still kind of in my mind what it hasn't come to complete. I haven't finalized the idea, but I, I I like the process. I mean...
1: Beautiful. Yeah. And urgent. Yeah. Michelle, thank you so, so much. This is the interview with Michelle Stewart. We are here on Worcester Street. We're in the company also of Luna. So thanks to Michelle. Thanks to Luna. This is uh, part one. Uh, it will be followed by Part 2, which will be a podcast about Michelle Stewart and the world of the maritime. Michelle, thank you very much.
0: And thank you. It's been a delight. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us once again for Viewpoints with Gallery Lalonde. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at gallerylalonde, one word, and to visit our website gallerylalong.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter and keep up to date with upcoming exhibitions and artist news. And from all of us at Gallery Lalong, thanks for listening.